We are in the midst of a series called Masterpiece, where we're talking about what God intends to create in us, what he intends to work in us. And uh, I, I uh, was thinking about the things in my life that God has used to shape me. And we're not going to talk about this particularly because we've talked about God's word and we will talk about God's word today. But one of the things that God has used to shape me in my life is reading. I love to read. I'm one of those. Uh, I, I just love to read books. How many of you out there like to read? Okay, how many of you, if reading was an option, if it was the last option, you would choose something else, right? Like, I, I love to read. That's one of the things I love to do. I, I like to open a good book. And I remember as a kid, I don't know where I heard this, probably from LeVar Burton on Reading Rainbow, which was an amazing show. How many of you, like, like I showed it to my girls the other day, like, we love this show. I'm like, exactly, this is awesome, right? And so I think it was on Reading Rainbow, but perhaps it was just through the course of my years they say reading is great because when you open a book you never know what you're going to find right like if you open up a book and we even have expressions about this right you can't judge a book by its cover right and so you never know when you open a book you never know all right what's going to be inside of it what's the story going to be like what's it about like you you don't really know it they don't do here's something for you they don't do book spoilers a lot online anymore because I guess people don't read. And so you don't get, you don't really know, okay? But that applies to more than just what might be written on the page. I was reading this week about um, some used booksellers that have found interesting things in the used books that have come into their store. So not just the story that's in there, but for instance, uh, in one store they opened it up and there was a baby's tooth inside. That's cute or gross, depending on your perspective. If it's your baby, it's cute. If it's an unknown baby in a book, it's weird, right? Or they found this. In in one one book, they found this. This is a rookie Mickey Mantle baseball card. And if you were like me growing up collecting baseball cards, this was like you heard about this. But in a used bookstore in New York, they opened it up. And as a bookmark was a mint condition, Mickey Mantle baseball card. Now, when I was growing up, I had I don't know. I'll just give you a little knowledge here. Um, I love baseball cards. I've still got boxes of them at my parents' house. They're not at our house. And I get told that every time I'm at my parents' house, like. When are you taking your baseball cards, you know? But I had the rookie Ken Griffey Jr. upper deck first edition card that I was told by the time I was 40, okay? So that's three months from now. By the time I was 40, would be worth thousands if I kept it in good shape. I checked it last week. $4.50, all right? So it's not quite as valuable. Susan's down there like, what, what are we going to get this card? What are we doing with this? All right. Four bucks, 50 cents. All right. And so my entire baseball card collection that was going to be worth four or five million is now worth uh, $15. All right. And so this was in one. They, they found um, a World War II ration book with rations still remaining in it. They found a pair of scissors in a book. Now, that takes work, right, to get scissors in a book. They found a, a dead cockroach. That was exciting. They, they found... 40, 40, all right? So you're going to have to do math real quickly. 40 of these in one book. Now, they don't even make these anymore. Those are $1,000 bills. Now, if you have 40 of them, how much money do you have? Look at that. Y'all are quick today, all right? Anybody know who this uh, president is here? That's Grover Cleveland, right? You know, you know old Grove, Grover Cleveland there. 
It's a thousand dollars, 40 of those in there. Um, and perhaps the strangest thing they found in a book was a strip of bacon. Now, I don't know if it was cooked or raw. I would hope cooked in some way. But what, what better bookmark than a good strip of bacon, right? Well, I was thinking about all this this week, all the crazy stuff you can find when you open up a book. And I thought about one of the strangest things I have ever seen in a book. Opened up a used book, opened it up, and on this page there was one of the strangest things I've ever seen. And here it is. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Okay, so we're going to talk about this in, in detail for just a minute uh, for the next few minutes. But just think about how weird that sounds if you didn't know that came from the Bible. Like if, if you went to one of your good friends and said, man, I am having the absolute worst time. I mean, it is terrible at work. My relationships are horrible. Well, count it all joy, brother. You go, what? Count it joy. It's like the worst time of my life. He doesn't say endure it. He doesn't say make it through. He doesn't say just keep putting one step in front of the other. He says count it all joy. If you got your Bibles, turn to James chapter 1. We're going to look at this first part of it. We're in this series called Masterpiece. We've been looking at how God creates us into the people that He wants us to be, how He turns us into His masterpiece. Our, our kind of theme verse for the whole series over the last few weeks has been um, out of the book of Ephesians where we have been saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast, and that we have been saved and that God is creating in us, that He is making us into His workmanship, that we have been turned into His Workmanship. We talked about that word in Ephesians means piece of art or masterpiece. We talked about the way he does that. He does it through um, looking into his word. He talks about private disciplines. We talked about relationships last week. Today we're going to talk about what perhaps is the most difficult and perhaps the most fruitful way that he does it. C.S. Lewis, who is one of my favorite authors, um, has a quote that I just love. C.S. Lewis was a guy that came to faith in the Lord late. Uh, most of you know because he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia series. Um, but he wrote that and several other books. One of the greatest books on why he believes in Christianity called Mere Christianity that's around. Um, and so he wrote all these books, but he also experienced extreme loss. Fell in love with this American woman and he was from Britain and they had this relationship and she died through an illness He wrote a book called A Grief Observed. And one of the things C.S. Lewis says is that God often whispers to us in our joy and yells in our pain. That the pain and the difficulty and the struggles in our lives, that God speaks more loudly in those than in others usually. And in James chapter 1, we're going to look at the pain in our lives. And here's the thing. We have to come to grips, and we'll talk about this throughout, that the whole reason that you are on this earth, the reason that God created you, is to have a relationship with you and then develop you into the kind of person that will display his love and glory to all of those you encounter. And trials and difficulties are one of the best ways we demonstrate the love and compassion of God to those around us. One pastor said, that's why Christians get cancer. 
That's why Christian businessmen and women have bankruptcies. The sons and daughters of the kingdom handle things differently than the sons and daughters of the world. In those moments, you find a chance to shine the light of the gospel and to display the superiority of the life lived with God. I was thinking about this week and I heard an illustration that Charles Swindoll, who's a pastor in Texas, used. It's a true story about a, a guy named Glenn Chambers. And Glenn was a guy that grew up in the church and had a heart to serve God. And when he was in college, he, he felt like the Lord was calling him to go overseas to do mission work. And so he went to college and then he went to seminary and he took all the training he had to do. And um, in a lot of church traditions, uh, one of the things I love about our Southern Baptist tradition, one of the reasons we are Southern Baptist is because uh, we funnel money to our convention that then helps people that feel a calling to go to the, the mission field to go. And so we support missions all the time. We have uh, close to 4,500 missionaries on the field right now. But in a lot of traditions, you have to go around and raise money. Like, I'm going to be there and I'm going to need this, this much money. And if you could help me out and go speak at church. And he went to all these churches. And he got all kinds of funding. And he raised just enough money to get what he needed to get to go on mission. In the midst of all that, he had, had struggled with some own financial problems. And specifically, he'd had some disagreements with his parents who weren't real sure about him going as a single guy. They had been real supportive of the money, but they had given him a little bit. He dealt with the fact that he wasn't going to be able to see them for several years. And as he was about to fly, he thought, you know, I I really should write them a quick note. I should. I mean, I tried. I I don't I don't know that I went out of my way to make things as right as I could. And so he, he sat down and. He didn't have any paper, so he tore off the corner of a magazine sitting in the airport, and he wrote this note. He wrote, Mom and Dad, I'm so excited going to serve Christ. Thanks for finally getting behind me in this. I love you, Glenn. He stuffed the note in an envelope, and he put it in a mailbox, and he sent it to them to mail from the airport, knowing it would take a few days to get there. Glenn got in the plane, took off, flew down to South America, and sometime in the middle of the night... A mountain in the jungles of Ecuador claimed the plane. Reached up and grabbed it, and Glenn was killed in the plane crash. He never made it. All the training, all the fundraising, all the work, and he never got there. After the funeral was over, a couple of days later, his parents finally got that letter in the mail from Glenn. They opened it up, read what he said, And when they turned it over, the magazine corner he had used on the other side just had one word on it. Why? Why? And as Swindoll told the story, he went on to say, that's the hardest question you can ever ask. It's the question that hurts the most. It's the question that lingers the longest. It's the question that every follower of Jesus Christ wants to ask and wants an answer to. And this morning, we're going to try to answer some of the why from James chapter 1. So look at James chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, James. Now, quick question. uh, Who is James? He's not one of the original disciples. Who's James? He's Jesus' brother, right? The technical term is Jesus is, I mean, James is Jesus' half-brother because they share a mom. But Jesus' dad is God the Father and James' dad is Joseph. But he is a brother of Jesus. He um, lived with Jesus, grew up with Jesus, saw Jesus' ministry. We don't know how much difference there is, but probably not but a couple of years difference between James and Jesus. Um, James is always one of those that you use to prove the existence of Jesus as God's son because they say, how much evidence would it take? To prove to you that your brother is God's son, right? Like, 
how would how much would it take for you to convince them? And James, who wasn't a believer during his entire life. James wasn't a believer in Jesus during Jesus entire life. Somehow after that, Jesus appears to James and James becomes a follower of his brother as God's son. This as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he is such a believer in Jesus that by the time we get 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road after Jesus resurrection, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the biggest church in the world, the pastor there is James. He's writing to the 12 tribes and the dispersion. What does that mean? That just means that there are believers who are Jewish believers that have been dispersed into all of the world by this point. And he's writing to them and he says, greetings. Now, we're going to stop it just there, because usually if you're used to Paul's letters, if you're not used to Paul's letters, this will make a big difference. But if you've read Paul's letters, Paul would then go on a long kind of thing about I give thanks to the Lord for you. I praise God for who you are. God Almighty, the Lord and all of that and give a kind of a. Um, oh, not fluffy, but he would give an extended introduction. James doesn't do any of that. Verse 2. Next verse says this. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. One pastor this week said that if I were nominating the most outrageous statements in Scripture, this would be right at the top. Count it joy when you face trials of all kinds. And here's the reason that we want to talk about it this morning is because God uses this if we will allow him to really change who we are. And it tells us right there at the very beginning what the goal of the trials in our lives are. It tells us three things. First of all, it tells us that it brings about joy. Now, notice he doesn't say happiness. He says joy. There's a distinct difference biblically between happiness and joy. Happiness is in the moment. Happiness is fleeting. Happiness is now. Happiness is how I feel. Like, hey, we're going to get a group of guys together and watch the UT game out and we're going to grill some steaks outside. Man, I'm so happy right now. And then you watch UT and they get beat and you're like, man, it's a terrible night. Right? James is saying the kind of happiness is, is not circumstantial. It's something different. It's Happiness is fleeting. Joy is not. I was thinking about happiness last night because um, we had a, a great uh, Halloween fall festival weekend, right? We moved over November and scary movies are off the TV and all that now. But um, we had a great kind of weekend and had a, had a fun party on Friday night and um, Saturday morning, we watched uh, Toy Story of Terror and, you know, just we, we enjoyed the weekend and then came to our fall festival last night. We had a great day yesterday and I think I have a picture of us. Here's us at the fall festival last night and you see um, uh, Ant-Man and me and Eli who thankfully ducked down or he'd be taller than us just about and the girls over here. It's just a great time. We had a great time here. Lots of good volunteers. We moved from the park where we originally intended to set up because of the rain and threat of rain. We moved it all here and uh, it, we had a great turnout and great helpers and all that. And went home and did some trick-or-treating. And you, you realize for like um, kids, Halloween is like the third best day of the year. Right? Number one would be, it's not Christmas, it's their birthday. Because on Christmas, it's about everybody. On their birthday, it's about them, right? Of course, in my family, we celebrate birthday weeks. Like, we have parties for days, right? And so you have 
birthday, Christmas, and Halloween. Because you are given candy by adults and told to enjoy. Luke was talking about towards the end of it last night. Um, towards the end of the festival last night, he said, I was just walking around. They were just giving me candy. I didn't have to do anything. I was like, this is the greatest day. So we get home and it's late, but we know we got an extra hour to sleep in the morning because of all that daylight savings times ending and all that. And so kids want to watch something kind of calm down, which is fine because they needed to calm down from the uh, 18 Kit Kats and Pixie Sticks and all of that. And so they're watching it and we tell them, you can watch one episode. Okay. So we put on Netflix and we put on something and I hear the next episode starting. You know, you, you know, parents, you know what I'm talking about. You hear the next episode starting and I hear the quiet as a church mouse kids not saying, hey, dad, and, you know, like, dad, another episode starting. It'd be good if you come and turn it off now so we don't have to watch anymore because you told us what well, we don't hear that. And so I just I have my remote on my phone. And I just turn it off and I hear what? What is that? Dad, the TV went. I said, I know it went off. I turned it off. So it's time to go to bed. And one of my kids, I won't name her name, had a breakdown. No. Now, we're an hour past bedtime. We've been on a sugar rush, all day party kind of thing. And so breakdowns are expected. But I went to pick her up. I was like, "Uh, baby, it's time for bed. What's wrong? It's been the worst Halloween ever. I was like, no, (laughs) ma'am. We had a little daddy daughter moment about the fun we had had all day. But in her mind, in that moment, she was not getting what she wanted. And so it was horrible. And the 18 hours of happiness we had had before was gone. Aren't you glad we don't base our feelings on the emotions of the moment? Happiness is fleeting. That's what one definition of joy is. Joy is a supernatural delight in the person, purposes, and people of God. It's to know the Lord. To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. It makes us happier to know Him than anything else in the world. To know the purposes of God. That there's something bigger than me going on. Something so far beyond what we know. That it allows us to endure what's happening now. It's joy in the people of God. Of walking through these trials. With God's people by your side. With brothers and sisters in Christ. James says, count it all joy. My brothers. Here's the truth. The saddest thing is when you talk about the difference between joy and happiness. Comes for those who aren't believers in Jesus Christ. Because happiness is all they have. That even if you spent your life attaining every level of happiness imaginable through any means necessary, that when this life is done, it's done. After this life comes judgment. And Scripture says it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God apart from the protection that comes through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It doesn't matter how many good times you had here when you cross over into the afterlife, it's gone. He says, consider it. Think about it. Dwell on it. The idea here is, is to look at it, to weigh it, to calculate it, to measure it, to say, okay, God, I know that I exist 
for your glory. I know that I exist to tell people about you. I know that the reason I'm alive is to give praise and honor to you and to live my life in a way that demonstrates your love and your mercy and your character. So that's why I'm here. All right, God, why in the world are you allowing me to go through this in light of that purpose? What do you want me to display to the people around me about your love and your mercy and your strength and your power in the midst of this? Consider it pure joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, you can't consider it pure joy. You can't come to the conclusion about the superiority of a life lived in God, about the reality of His glory and His love. You can't come to that conclusion if you're filling your face with food to dull the pain, or when you're filling your mind with entertainment to dull the pain, or you're filling your heart with anger to dull the pain, or filling your body with a substance to dull the pain. You come to that conclusion by considering who you are and who God is and what He might want to do through you. Practical step about how to consider it when you're in the midst of a trial is simply this. Take, uh, I saw this this week online and I, I love the concept of it. You just get three three-by-five cards. You know what I'm talking about, like index cards. And on the first card you write the question, what is happening to me? And you just write down, write down, what trial you're going through at the moment. In the second card, you write, why am I here on earth? And you write the purpose of your life. If you need help with that, you can go to Scripture for that. I can talk to you about that. But what is God? What's the reason God has me here? So what's happened to me? What's the purpose for my life? And then lastly, write down, how can what's happening right now help in my purpose for God? What can I do here and now to advance the purpose of showing people the superiority of a life lived In God. Trials can develop joy in our lives as we seek to understand God more than the happiness that we want. But then he goes on to tell us another reason that we have trials is not just to develop joy, but that we may be tested. Man, don't you love getting tested? Like when your favorite part of school testing guys, y'all like tests. Is that your favorite part of school? Not a single response. Y'all are just dead out there, all right? How many of you would prefer not to have any test in life at all, right? Like, we don't want tests. We don't want to look at that and go, woo! Excited about some tests today. Now, I've known some people that were excited about tests, and they will remain nameless because that's weird, all right? And he says that we have trials for testing, Trials separate men from boys, sheep from goats, separate wheat from chaff. um, It it just demonstrates who we already are. Uh, I love football movies. You know, like Remember the Titans and Rudy, those football movies. There's a great one out right now, if you haven't seen it, by the way. It's a faith-based movie called Woodlawn. Anybody seen Woodlawn? If you have, it's really, really good, all right? I took the boys to see Woodlawn. I I picked a terrible time to go see it um, because... I didn't really know what the movie was about. I heard it was faith-based. I heard it was football. I was like, great, that's awesome. I love those two things. I want to go watch this movie. I want to take the boys to it. I heard that there's lots of stuff about salvation and stuff. And so, all right, I'm going to go do this. Anybody know, it's about football in Alabama. And it's about two of Alabama's traditionally great football players and their life of faith. And the movie makes you root for Alabama football players. And I was watching the movie 
at the beginning of the Alabama-Tennessee football game. I, I cannot. There is, there is something going on. I can't root for these guys, but you end up rooting for them in the movie. But I love football movies. And there was one that came out a few years ago that, not a mainstream one, it was a, a documentary about a high school in Memphis that I played when I played football. Um, when I played football in northwest Tennessee, I played this team. And so it's this team that's an inner-city Memphis football team. Uh, the movie, name of the movie is called Undefeated. And this businessman takes over as coach of this team, and they end up, he just wants to get them to the playoffs. That's his whole goal, to have a winning season. They'd won like three games. To tell you, they were the team that Ripley, the place that I pastored, would schedule for homecoming every year. Now, I don't know if you know much about football, but generally the people you schedule for homecoming are the teams you what? You know you're going to beat, Right? And so I was watching this, it was interesting because I'd seen, I mean, like, you know, I've seen the uniforms and played against them. And the, the coach said, I, I found out as a quote from a, a Buffalo Bills coach that may have come from somewhere else, Marv Levy, but he said this great quote. He said, football doesn't build character, it reveals it. And one of the things that happens is, I don't know that tests and trials, although they do test us, I, I'm not sure they build our character as much as they reveal What's already there. Jesus said, by the fruits that they show, you'll know them. That a genuine believer will endure to the end to be saved. And John said that there were those that went out from them because they would not remain in the midst of the trial. Scripture teaches that if a trial comes and you run away, you need to check whether or not you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul, Jesus, John all say that a true test of whether or not we are followers of Jesus Christ is what happens when the testing comes, when the pressure comes on our lives. This summer I read a book about the fastest boat ride ever through the Grand Canyon. And the reason that it was in a wooden boat with just oars and they were going ridiculously fast down there. And the reason they were is because it was in this um, flood that had never happened on the Colorado River in, in many, many years. And I, don't, I know y'all don't care a whole lot about Colorado history, river history, but they had built dams all along the way to stop the water. All the snow melted on one weekend from the winter, and it all came rushing down. And what happened is it got to the dams, and as it got in the dams, they were releasing some through the dams, and all of a sudden they figured out there were problems with the dams. And they were cracking and breaking. I was reading this book. It's a fascinating book because these guys hear about it. It's illegal what they do. They jump on the river to go while they're releasing all this water. But the whole time they don't know there's a chance the dam's going to fail. And all the water in this huge man-made reservoir is going to come running down the river. And I was reading it. And one of the guys said, listen. The problems in the dam have been here the whole time. It's just the pressure of the moment that's revealing it. And one of the reasons that we count it joy, and this sounds weird, is because it reveals our true character. And then he says, For the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Here's the thing. When you're in the midst of trials, there are three questions you get to ask yourself. And if you have to answer these questions correctly. And the first one is this. Do you believe that God is in control? The basis of everything in life has to hinge on your belief that God is in control. The second question you have to ask yourself is, do you believe that God is good? 
no matter what happens to you? Do you believe God's in control? Do you believe God is good? And the third question is, will you wait on God by faith until the darkness becomes light? Do I believe God's in control? Do I believe He's good? And in the midst of that, He's a great God and He's good. I'm going to wait on Him no matter what that means. If you do, it produces this thing called steadfastness. And we don't do a lot of Greek work around here because you don't care about Greek work really. But this word steadfastness is really two Greek words put together and it means literally to remain under. The idea is that when God tests our faith, when this problems of all kinds, that, that word various means it's the same word used for Joseph's coat in Genesis, like all kinds of colors, just all kinds of tests are going to come our way. We're going to stumble into them. They're going to attack us. We're going to find ourselves in all kinds of difficult situations. And when that happens, when that difficulty is happening. That if we will remain under, that God will bless. But here's the problem. Most of us are wimps. Amen? Apparently not. I am, all right? Anybody, uh, here's the picture that really you get from that. Anybody ever lifted weights in here? Anybody ever done like, I'm not talking about like going to the gym and doing the, the, uh, the machine weights. I'm talking about like the actual like barbells and weights. When I was playing football, we used to do clean and jerk. You remember clean and jerk, right? Or you have to go up over your head, bar press. Um, the idea literally is to, the picture is of somebody's holding a weight above their head and just remains there. The scripture says that testing of your faith, joy in the Lord will allow us to just remain under. This week, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I had this strange thing kind of happen with me at work. Um, I, I suddenly felt pressure in my left ear. Now, here, here's, I'm going to let you know a little secret. Some of you think I'm young, but I'm about to turn 40. All right. And uh, I have to come to the realization that my body is not going to operate like it always has. Okay. And that there are going to be things that don't make sense. But this is this weird. Anybody ever gotten like water in your ear and you feel like you just need to like shake it out, right? You know what I'm talking about? That's the way this felt, but it's like three days of feeling like that and shaking my head until I was a little loopy, all right? I mean, it's not coming out. And so I go to the doctor, and I'm going to the doctor, and I'm expecting she's going to say, look, I, I don't know, one of your daughters must have stuck an action figure in your ear or something, or, you know, like there's there's a piece, I use Q-tips in your ears. I don't, that's the most rebellious thing I do in my life probably, you know? Y'all know it says on the back of the Q-tip thing, do not stick this in your ear. All right. And so I'm thinking part of a Q-tip's come off. It's stuck in my ear. I mean, you know, I've got a, I've got a tumor in my ear. There's growth there, right? And I go in and I go to the, this nurse practitioner and I'm like, you gotta help me. And she goes, everything else fine. Everything's fine. She's so been underwater lately. I was, I was in the ocean last week, but you know, it's just happened Monday, you know, all this stuff. And she looks in me, you know, and I'm expecting monumental diagnosis. I'm preparing myself. She goes, well, it looks like you have a little congestion in the left side of your face. And that's all. So, so what do you want me to do about that? Um, it'll probably just clear itself up over the next few days. Like, that's not what I want to hear. Like, I want you to reach in there and grab whatever's causing this and remove it, right? Because I want it done when? Now. Because we're wimps. We don't want to, we don't want to hear, just wait on it a little while. Like any of you parents ever taken a kid to the doctor and says, I just hope they find something right. Like I don't want to deal with I want some medicine. I want to get this over with. I want to go through it like I don't want to I don't want to wait. I don't want to 
stand under. And yet, Scripture says that we are to stand under whatever God allows into our lives. We don't complain about it. We don't lash out at anybody else. We don't bail when it gets tough. Peter says to humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. We produce steadfastness. So the goal of the trials in our lives is to develop joy within us, to help us to test and to know that we are God's children and to show that forth and to develop within us this ability to stand under whatever comes our way. And then James gives us the last few words here, and he says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let me ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. Let me just say, this is one of the most misused verses in all of Scripture. Because college students use it all the time. They stay up late, don't study a bit, get to class next morning, we got a test. Hey, God, you said if anyone lacks wisdom, that you would give it to them. So could you please download the wisdom of this test for me at this moment, right? That's not what it means. He's saying is, if you're in the midst of a trial, you're in the midst of that difficulty, and you don't know what's happening, and you lack wisdom, ask God. And God will give you wisdom. Now this is, let me tell you what he's not going to answer. He's not going to answer the big existential question, why? There are times that I wish I knew why, or I think I want to know why, but the truth is God has determined I don't need to. He won't answer. The wisdom that he'll give you may not, probably not, will be why you're going through it. The wisdom will be, what do you want to develop in me in the midst of it? How do I hold up under this in the midst of it? And in the midst of that, he'll give it. Next verse says this. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his way. He's saying that when you come to the Lord, you come asking for wisdom and you come believing that God is going to show it. It's talking about a, a, a wisdom that comes in understanding who you are and what you've become in Him. And what happens when you come to the Lord in this moment is that you come in submission to him. You lay your life down and say, whatever it is you want to teach me, Lord, I'm willing to listen and obey. And as you do that, God does miraculous things in your lives in the midst of your most difficult circumstances. Verse 8 says, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. That word literally means a two-souled person says that when we come to the Lord and we doubt, we don't really want to know, we, we just want to get out of whatever it is. We're like a two-souled person that can't make up their mind about whether they want to follow God or they don't. And honestly, none of the rest of what we've talked about matters if you don't make that decision first. If you can't decide whether you want to really follow God and do whatever he asks, wherever he asks, whenever he asks, whatever that means for your life, whatever trials may come, if you can't decide, you're like a double-minded man who's not going to get an answer about how to make it through. But when we do and submit to him, God uses us for his glory. Let's pray together.